friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed. Hey, this is um, MutinyRadio.fm. You're listening to the Flat Black Plastic Show. Again, the queuing is not working, so... joints went out on that and, uh, the bushings and then your mother wanted to trade it in on the tornado so we got the tornado and god I hated the color of that son of a bitch and the dog destroyed the upholstery on the Ford oh, hell, that, was, that was long before you were born we called it the yellow bird two door three on the tree tight little mother threw a rod sold it to Jacobs for a hundred dollar now the special uh, four-holer, you never seen body panels line up like that. Overhead cam, dual exhaust, hell I had, see I had four Buicks. Loved them all. <laughs> now your Uncle Emmett, well he drives the Thunderbird now. They used to belong to your Aunt Evelyn. Now she, she ruined it. Drove it to Indiana with no gear oil. That was the end of that sold that Cadillac to your mom. Your mom loved that caddy. Independent rear suspension, Landau top, good tires, gas hog. I swear it had the power to repair itself. I love the olds. Dan Steele used to give them to me at a discount. Showroom models. And then there was the Pontiac. And the... God. I love that Pontiac. <laughs> well, it was kind of an oxblood uh, it's just, God, it handled so beautifully. Yeah, I miss that car. The most unpleasant, precarious, and downright stupid immortality blueprint was drafted by the ancient Egyptians. First, you have to get yourself mummified. And that was very expensive, making immortality a monopoly of the truly rich. Then your continued immortality in the Western lands is entirely dependent on the continued existence of your mummy. That is why they had their mummies hid good. 
Now here's this plain G.I. Ali, and he's got enough Baraka, enough energy to survive his first physical death. Well, he won't get far. He's got no mummy, he's got no names, he's got nothing. What happens to a bum like that, a nameless, mummyless asshole? Why, demons will swarm all over him at the first checkpoint. He will be dismembered and thrown into a flaming pit where his soul will be utterly consumed and destroyed. While others with sound mummies and the right names to drop in the right places sail through to the western lands. There are, of course, some who just barely squeeze through. Their mummies is not in a good sound condition. These creeps can only live in the third-rate transient hotels just beyond the last checkpoint where they can smell the charnel house disposal ovens from their skimpy balconies. <clears throat> Might as well face facts. My mummy is going downhill. I don't even feel like a human. Cheap job to begin with. God, maggots is crawling all over it. <clears throat> the way that demon guard looked at me this morning. <clears throat> Transient hotels. Here you are in a luxury condo deep in the western land. You got no security. Some disgruntled former employee sneak into your tomb and throw acid on your mummy. <coughs> Slush gasoline all over and burn the shit out of it. <coughs> oh, someone is fucking with my mummy. <coughs> Brother, you are fucked. Let's face it, mummies are sitting ducks. No matter who you are, what can happen to your mummy is a pharaoh's nightmare. Floods, volcanoes, earthquakes. Perhaps the mummy's best friend is an Egyptologist. <clears throat> In museums, they're safe from spiteful enemies, grave robbers and scavengers, and kept at a constant temperature, but <clears throat> air raid, Cyrus, it's the Blitz. For God, for Ra's sake, get us into the vaults. Scream the mummies without a throat, without a tongue. By Allah, Kim decides this deal stinks like a dead camel. Long dead. Anyone buy in on a thing like that should have his mummy examined. Don't take us for dumber than we look. The Johnsons has taken over the Western lands. We bought it, we built it, we paid for it. It's ours, and we're going to take it. I was barely 10 years old when I became the keeper of an Atra Virago more commonly known as the Vargas Barking Spider. But I had to let him go, for I could not compete. My Atra Viraga was given to me by a hobo in exchange for a pint of peel liquor, which I milked off one of Mars stills the same evening. If I had been just a little stronger, I know I could have healed him. The exchange went as it should have, 
although I sensed it was a solemn moment for the hobo. The way in which his hands trembled as he handed me the fatty skillet, barely able to hold down the lid, betrayed a certain sensitivity that was rare amongst the hobos, who in the main were a worthless, roguish lot. I made for my spider's home an ingenious coop. This is how. Listen. I found in the pile an old hubcap and a battered kitchen colander that put face to face, fitted perfectly and formed a slightly flattened globoid with a solid bottom and heavily perforated ceiling for breathing and looking. I tore up a newspaper into even strips and lined the hubcap with them, making a soft springy floor. My barking spider was as big as a dinner plate and fitted the coop exactly. I fed him mainly on houseflies with the occasional earwig or blue bottle and kept the coop under my bed for the first day. I did not leave my room for three days and three nights. Late at night I would sit hid beneath the covers like a fiend. The coop nestled snugly in my lap, a box of matches in my trembling paw. I would hold my breath, incline my ear, and listen. After a time, there in the dark, I would find and strike a match along the side of the coop, holding it up close to the perforations so that the dancing flame would cast its quivering light within. With lungs raw from the acrid fumes, I would draw to and peer in, into the coop and into its weird orbits. Those pits, those blackwater wounds, unblinking, fearless. And again, again, dizzy with sulfurous air, again. I believe I could have left this life by way of those damp, drugged pits. The mires of its eyes, those onyx pools, dragged down by the pull of those dark-lit spirals. For they held me, they did. Paralyzed, numb, blisters bubbled on fore and thumb. Little black cinders littered my sheets. I listened again, and again I peered in. On the fourth day, I decided to shift the coop outside. The silence of the barking spider was destroying me. It was a truly wondrous spider. Jet black it was, its caudal region given over to a silky ebony hair. Only its eyes flashed, but blackly too like raw coal or iced soot. Blackly, I say, and only sometimes. But always it shunned me. Never once did I see it move in the coop. Never once did I hear it bark. First I thought it was the coop that displeased him. Then I thought that maybe he's just a mute like me. Next, waking in a cold sweat on the second night, I was haunted by another thought, a thought which hung heavy in my heart. Perhaps it was waiting for me to speak first. Oh, lonesome spider, if only I could have let you know. Finally, I took him outside, the coop in a pillowcase. I sat on the log near the one-armed gallow tree and unbagged the coop. The coop shone in the sun like a silver helmet and a spear of light did flash upon it. I checked for crows. 
Opening the coop by way of halving it, I shook the spider from the hubcap and little strips of newspaper fluttered down like streamers. Streamers and the corpses of a hundred insects like wedding rice about me. My Atra Virago landed right side up on his feet in the manner of all dropped spiders or so I've found. And without so much as a nod, my spider crawled the length of the log and disappeared into the cane. And I sat there a while, just so, on the log. And then after a while or so, I sauntered up the slope to the junk pile with nothing all that pressing to do. And I tossed the two halves of the coop over and mulled around. I roasted in the sun. Whalers are we, we are whalers, don't get scared, nothing happening but out and way out, nothing happening but the positive, unless you the negative, whalers, we whalers, yeah whale, yeah whalers, we whale, we whale, we could dig Melville on his ship, Confronting the huge white mad beast, speeding death across the sea to we. But we whalers, we can kill whales. We can get on top of a whale and whale. Whalers, undersea defense hot folk. Blues babies humming when we arrive. Boogie ladies strumming our black violet souls. Rag daddies come from the land of never say die. Reggae workers bringing the funk to the people of I. We whalers, all right. Hail to you, Bob, man. We will ask your question all our lives. Could you be loved? I and I understand. We see the world. Eyes and eyes say yes to transformation. Whalers, I, whalers, subterranean night color magis, working inside the soul of the world. Whalers, eyes, seeing the world's being. Hey, Bob, whale on, rock on, y'all come into us as real vision and action. Hey, Larry, whale on with Lester and the pork pie, whaling us energy for truth. We whalers is all... And on past that to say, wailing for all we worth. Rhythm folks obsessed with stroking what is with our sound purchase. Call me Theolonius in my crowded whale vessel. I hold the keys to the funk kingdom. Lie on me if you want to. Tell folks it's yours. But for real wailing, not tale telling, the sensitive know who the whalers be. Be we, be we, we whalers, blue blowers, the real rhythm kings. We sing philosophy, hand bone precise findings, image masters of the syncope. Whalers and drummers, whalers and trumpet stars, whalers and box cookers, whalers and sax flyers, whalers and bass thumpers. 
whalers and hey whale whale we whalers trombone benders magic singers Ellingtonians, the only trains faster than rocket ships. Shit, cut a rocket in our pocket and put a cord on the wall of the wind. Whalers, can you dig whaling? Call me Bud Powell. You want to imitate this? Listen. My calling card. The dialectic of silence. The sound approach. Life one day will be filled even further with numbers we song. But primitive place now we wailing be kept underground. But keep it in mind. Call me something dukish, something sassy. Call me by my real name. When the world change, we wailing be in it. Help make it for real time. Call me, I call you, we call we. Say, hey whalers, hey whalers, hey, 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 hey whalers, whale on. Sometimes I ask if I have any words of advice for young people, Well, Here are a few simple admonitions for young and old man and beast. Never interfere in a boy and girl fight. <clears throat> Beware of whores who say they don't want money. <laughs> the hell they don't. What they mean is they want more money, much more. These are the most expensive whores what can be got. <clears throat> If you're doing business with a religious son of a bitch, get it in writing. <laughs> His word isn't worth shit. <laughs> Not with a good lord telling him how to fuck you on the deal. <laughs> If, after having been exposed to someone's presence, you feel as if you'd lost a quart of plasma, avoid that presence. <laughs> you need it like you need pernicious anemia. We don't like to hear the word vampire around here. We're trying to improve our public image. <laughs> Building a kindly, avuncular, benevolent image. Interdependence is the key word. Enlightened interdependence. Life in all its rich variety. Take a little, leave a little. However, by the inexorable logistics of the vampiric process, they always take more than they leave, and why indeed should they take any? Avoid fuck-ups. <laughs> Fools, I call them. You all know the type. <laughs> <laughs> 
No matter how good it sounds, everything they have anything to do with turns into a disaster. Trouble for themselves and everyone connected with them. A foo is bad news and it rubs off. Don't let it rub off on you. Do not proffer sympathy to the mentally ill. It is a bottomless pit. <laughs> Tell them firmly, I am not paid to listen to this drivel. You are a terminal fool. <laughs> Otherwise, they make you as crazy as they are. Uh, bubble, avoid confirmed criminals. They are a special malignant strain of fool. <clears throat> Kim, like the great Gatsby, Kim believes in the green light, the orgiastic future. He believes in a magical universe, unpredictable, spontaneous, alive. A universe where anything is possible. A universe of many gods often in conflict. So the paradox of an all-knowing, all-powerful god who nonetheless permits suffering, evil, and death does not arise. Well, we got a famine here, Osiris. What happened? Well, you can't win them all, I'm hustling myself. Can you give us immortality? I can give you an extension, maybe. Take you as far as the first checkpoint. You'll have to make it from there on your own. Most of them don't. Figure about one in a million. And biologically speaking, that's very Good odds. There's a piece uh, from uh, the Book of Nods called Just Visiting. When the shooting broke, I decided to vault the teller's window and face the fire from the other side. They saw my far forearm tightening across the throat of the cashier, Ms. Lattimore, and as my browning was raised to her temple's pulse, they took it back. It all fell dead. With the silence, I felt the distance between my trigger and the man. I heard the reverberation of the last stray bullet's muffled ring. It moved out through my brain in circles of jagged light, expanding like still water broken by a stone. Some smart young lieutenant arrived to take things over. He leaned his eyes a moment through the doors in front and then went around back. He went inside a small light room and threw the switch. All the lights rolled out of thin vapor tubes above me from right to left. The darkness absorbed more silence. I could hear their details being signed. The tone of the head man's voice was clear. They were hot to blow me away. I didn't expect my hostage would go down to the deal. I knew she signed that paper when she took the job. But I just wanted some last contact. I would have rather some sweet, clever music. I slit, I slit the strap to her bra. I reached under. I felt my palm rinse her breast. It could have been a radio. I moved my lips closer so only she could hear me. It should have been a radio. 
I whispered in my codeine voice. I told her, you see, you see, all my life, the women I've been with, and that's more than you can imagine, really. I always bypassed their breasts. I went down, you know? I went to the source. I honestly don't think you're going to die, so don't be afraid. Listen, I wanted the thunder on my fingers, on my lips. What are a woman's breasts? It's just so much adornment. They lay like chalices on an altar waiting for adoration. Like the writing on the scroll, the handles on the urn, the gold that lines the vessel. I wanted the mystery inside, the thunder and the darkest light. I mean, I feel the sharpness of your nipple. It's flawless, there's no doubt about that. Just let me move it over here. Oh, it came out, it's so red. You must be younger than you appear. I know about that kind of thing, really. Once I told this girl that she had breasts like bleeding lemons, she thought that was a beautiful thing to say. But what are they? It's just architecture. Where is the wetness? And, and why are they so white, so terribly white? Whiteness frightens me horribly. When I was 14 years old, I went to my friend's house at the beach in Long Island. The sun there in the sand, I remember. It was terrible, too much whiteness. I couldn't stand it. I stayed in my friend's room for days and listened to music. His mother and his fat sister, they thought me quite insane. I wanted to teach myself to play the drums. The sister was 36 years old and so fat the mother had to tie the laces on her shoes. I hated her and she hated me, but I was just visiting so it wasn't fair. One day I bolted out of the bathroom while she was listening, leaning up to the door, and I jammed a pencil into her jaw. She, she ran away crying about lead poisoning, but you know, you really can't get lead poisoning in that way. It's a wives' tale. I know about these things, really. At night, when the shadows cancel the blinding white, I go down to the beach and run because it is important to keep the body well. That's in case they come again. You, I'm sure, don't concern yourself much worrying about them, do you? You know, your breasts are like that beach, so white and dry, yet so near to the source, the water, and the motion of the waves. What could ever be more pure? Please allow me to feel down here. I won't try to sneak anything up the wrong hole. I know that can hurt if you're not used to it. They did it to me. I let them think I didn't really care, but I found a closet down at the end of the cell block, and I hid in it and learned things and made marks on my forearm with a fork I snuck from the cafeteria. You could see here the scars. It's not just an X. It's actually an image of, my, of the cross St. Peter died on. They nailed it to him, inverted. He's my patron saint. But in dreams, no one escapes. My fingers have been broken for days. I just want to push myself out of this place, but I know the gravity is sick for revenge. And the light that I let loose, well, it's not coming back, baby. It's like some thick bronze ring around my neck. I can't even turn my head to see if the man's still outside waiting for me. I need a sign to tell me that everyone's still safe. I have always kept stored enough strength in my arms to keep the pain surrounding me from reaching them. You won't get hurt, don't worry. I feel more sure now. Last night, when my eyes were sealed, I watched someone's head spill to the floor as if it was trying to empty the light. My screams were like lasers. The twin scorpions were melting my thigh again, and some bitter surgeons were carrying each away. Inside it, I would like to construct 
in my sleep a graveyard where the stones are flawless and white. I could construct a satellite in my dreams to pass for the sun which left me last year for an older man. The past draws blood, you see. Sometimes in my room I am afraid of the monk who comes with shivering hair and teeth. I am afraid to face the immaculate with my unwashed hair. But ah, oh, there it is. And it's wet from fear. It's a wetness from fear. Wetness is not whiteness, but it's dark. Whiteness is the color of death, you know, not black. Wetness is life, the breeder and shaper of life. In the beginning, the sun was black. So all light was absorbed before it had a chance to return. And our dreams then were empty. That was Jim Carroll. This is Flat Black Plastic Show on mutinyradio.fm. one of the writers of National Lampoon's Animal House. I had the great pleasure of writing the film with Chris Miller and Doug Kenny, two of the distinguished authors that have contributed to the Lampoon's success over the years. And I'm here with one of the stars of Animal House, perhaps one of the fastest rising comedy talents in the United States, Mr. John Belushi. John, welcome. Thank you, Harold. It's uh, good to be here and it's good to talk to you. John, I suppose working in a college film probably stirred up some fond memories of your own uh, collegiate career. Is that uh, pretty much the case? Not really, Harold. Uh, I uh, always hated school and, and college and, and fraternities, but uh, I ended up doing this movie. I did it for the money. <laughs> Harold, tell me, uh, how long did it take you to write Animal House? Animal House was over two and a half years in the writing. So you spent a lot of time on it. Yes. So you got uh, a lot of money for it, didn't you, Harold? No, we didn't, John. You did. I heard you got a lot. Nope. Come on. Give well, me 20 bucks. Let me right? ask you a serious what? question, John. All right, let's get real serious. All right, let me ask you a okay. serious question. What was your favorite moment uh, uh, in the shooting of Animal House? <laughs> the rap party when we finished it. <laughs> really? Yeah. That was my favorite. <laughs> and you, John, uh, on Animal House, uh, you were described as a perfect dream to work with. Uh, you were described as, I think, drug-crazed, animalistic, cruel. All of those things. I'm a very complex person. They said, John, you requested a limousine to drive you uh, around the location itself, like if there was 15 feet between camera setup and, and the stage that you were driven in a car. Yes, I would and do And physically carried from the car to the camera? Physically? I don't think that's asking too much for an actor. I think I agree with Sylvester Stallone. When you're on uh, location, uh, you have to be taken care of. 
an actor has to be pampered a little bit. I mean, he's under a lot of pressure. John, I understand you've done two more films during the last year. Yeah. Kidding Gracie graduated was one. And the other one was, uh, I won't be twisting this Christmas because her boyfriend's back in town. No, I won't be twisting or just twisting as it's called in the trades twisting. now. It's twisting. It's twisting. Yes. It's, a, it's a youth movie. Uh-huh. You know. And you're playing Chubby Checker, is that correct? Uh, yeah. And you've worked with some pretty big stars, I guess, over the past uh, year. Actually, the past couple of years because of your connection with Saturday Night. Yeah. I'll be working with Barishnikov, uh in a ballet movie. You know, kind of, I'll be his kind of, his pal, you know. Ballet Buddies, it's called? Ballet Buddies, and uh, we are like, you know, two, two guys who like try to pick up girls and stuff, and then uh, have to practice eight hours a day and things like that. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a fun thing for me because uh, I don't know anything about dancing and he can't speak English, so it's gonna be, it's gonna be interesting. Another interesting thing I heard about this movie is that uh, instead of you, say, losing a lot of weight to play a ballet dancer, that Brishnikov is gonna gain 60 pounds? The guy's much too thin, to, you know. I mean, I'm not gonna stand thin. I mean, the guy's, he's small. This little guy, but he can jump. This guy can jump. I've never seen it. He'll jump up in the air like five feet, and then he'll 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 go in another direction and and land somewhere else, like you know, ten feet away. He does this at parties a lot. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> My friend Ball had gone to Zurich and had established it there. He had founded a cabaret called the Cabaret Voltaire, which now has become very famous, together with his wife, Emmy Hennings. I didn't like it in Berlin. I was very much opposed to the uh, imperial setup there. And together with many friends, we believed that the Kaiser and his army had uh, a great hand in causing the First World War. Our resentment was so strong that I decided to go to Zurich. Answering your question, I would say there were two motives. One is a personal one, namely to follow my friend uh, Hugo Ball, and the other one was a political and social one, to get out of Berlin and Germany. Recovery Voltaire was originally founded by Ball in order to give him some support. Uh, he wanted to make a living there. He had gone through hard times. Both founders, original founders of the cabaret, Voltaire, Ball and Hennings had worked in a factory and as they had no support, the Swiss were about to throw them out. So they founded the cabaret Voltaire, which was originally supposed to be only one of the many cabarets, but then uh, later the uh, artistic and literary elements came in. Ball had called it the cabaret Voltaire because at this time he was uh, at the extreme end of his liberalism, I may say. Later on, he turned back, and under the influence of Amy Hennings, he converted uh, to Catholicism. Ball, as well as myself, were writers. And one evening I came in, there was Zara and Arv and Janko and his brothers, all people who had come together to collaborate uh, with the Cabaret Voltaire. 
And the literary elements at this time were the main purpose of ours. We didn't think of Dada at all. Dada came in much later by the element of chance, which plays such an important role in, if I may call that, the theory of Dadaism, which is itself paradoxical because Dada has no theory. And we were later on very proud of the fact that Dada had no theory. Anyhow, our cabaret was bankrupt after two weeks and uh, the owner came and said, uh, dear friends, I'm sorry, but you will have to quit the place unless you bring in some money. So we had to hire a real performer who could sing, a ball played the piano, and we hired a Swiss girl. Uh, her name was rather complicated, and we wanted to give her a stage name, so I, a few days before she was supposed to come to the gallery, I went with him through the Larus Encyclopedia. And there I found the word da-da. So I said to Baal, why not da-da? And he said, da-da is wooden horse or toy in French. This girl that I was talking about never showed up in the cabaret, and uh, therefore we told the whole story to our friends. Uh, the word da-da had a kind of a magical attraction, and from now on we uh, called many of our activities da-da. Uh, there is a development from Dada to Dadaism. Dadaism already has a certain intent, at least, to uh, explain attitudes by theories, though we frowned very much about any theoretical uh, attitude. Zara, who was a very experienced and intelligent young man, and who had in mind uh, to make a career out of his knowledge of art, published then the uh, different uh, magazines. The first magazine, Cabaret Voltaire, was published by Hugo Ball and Emmy Hennings. But later, Zara published Dada 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, which now have become very famous and can be obtained only by high prices in auctions. En arrivant en Suisse en 1916, j'avais déjà écrit des poèmes et toute ma, mon intérêt était pour la poésie. Évidemment, ce n'était pas une poésie telle qu'on l'entendait à l'époque. C'était évidemment une poésie moderne. Apollinaire m'était déjà tout à fait familier, ainsi qu'Alfred Jarry et d'autres écrivains qui étaient de l'avant-garde à cette époque-là déjà. Nous avions vu le cubisme, il y avait le futurisme, il y avait l'expressionnisme. Enfin, il y avait un souffle de modernisme qui soufflait à travers l'Europe. You said there was a modernism in Europe, but it didn't prevent you from saying that Dada wasn't modern. What did you mean by that? Oui. Dada n'est pas moderne, nous l'avons dit exactement au moment du congrès de Paris, parce que Dada était assez anarchique et le modernisme, à l'époque, tendait à devenir un dogme, une sorte d'institution, si vous voulez. C'est-à-dire, il y avait la revue L'Esprit Nouveau, le modernisme s'appliquait en architecture, en peinture, et ce qui nous intéressait, nous, c'était l'esprit même des choses et de la vie que nous voulions exprimer. Or, Moderne avait un sens péjoratif. Pour nous, c'était presque une insulte de nous appeler modernes. Uh, you were against conventions in general. Exactement, exactement. Contre toutes les conventions, contre toutes les théories et contre tous les dogmatismes. Yes, that, uh, you've used the word uh, dialectical there. Uh, I wonder if you could try and link up Dadaism with uh, Marxism, with which you uh, became associated later on. Uh, it seems somehow that there's a contradiction between both uh, a Dadaist at one time and perhaps a Marxist at another. Oui, c'est exact. Mais à l'époque, nous n'avions absolument aucune notion ni de marxisme ni de politique. 
ceci s'était fait beaucoup plus tard et ce sont les surréalistes surtout qui ont voulu faire la connexion entre la littérature, l'art en général et le marxisme et le freudisme. Mais du temps de Dada, ce sont des problèmes qui ne se posaient pas et c'est pour cela du reste qu'on peut considérer le mouvement Dada en général comme une sorte de mouvement anarchique où l'individu s'exprimait lui-même mais sans vouloir arriver à une théorie générale. In yourself, how would you explain the, uh, the transformation, uh, the shifting from a very individualistic point of view to a more political one, more concrete one? Ceci est le fait surtout des surréalistes. Le surréalisme a commencé vers 1924 à Paris et évidemment ce n'est pas moi qui étais un des, des agents les plus importants. Vous le savez très bien que c'est Breton qui, qui a écrit des manifestes à l'époque. Mais euh, il faut dire qu'à vers 1924, on a tendu vers une sorte d'objectivation, tandis que Dada était extrêmement subjectif encore. Et la révolte de Dada était embryonnaire, était diffuse, n'avait pas un but précis, scientifiquement définissable. C'est évident que vers 1924, au moment de la guerre du Maroc en France, les surréalistes ont pris position contre le nationalisme français de l'époque et peu à peu euh, ont commencé à discuter de ces problèmes qui sont d'ordre social, qui sont le marxisme, etc. Mais Dada était très individualiste et ne concevait pas son adhésion au communisme à l'époque. So you, so you would say that uh, Dada, in other words, has uh, considerably changed. Non, il n'a pas changé puisque le surréalisme est encore autre chose que le, que le dadaïsme. Mais euh, on pourrait dire que Dada n'était pas une école ni une direction, c'était vraiment une aventure. Dada was... In these attempts to uh, intellectualize it, we finally came to the decision that the irrationality of this movement was its essential factor. We didn't know exactly against whom we should turn but it was very important for us to find a target for our resentment. Now I believe that all creative people have a great resentment either against the country that they live in or against the civilization, the period of history that they live in and we had this great hostility which we had turned first against the war and against the imperial regime but finally in Switzerland this kind of extreme hostility died down in a more comfortable atmosphere. We attacked the good Swiss people without any real justification. We attacked everyone in literature, uh, but still I was very much dissatisfied with it. So finally we generalized in such a way that we attacked conventionalism. The bourgeois was one of our main targets. But the bourgeois has been attacked so often that this couldn't satisfy me either. So I found out what is the bourgeois and I made the sad discovery that we were all bourgeois. There's an element that we didn't mention yet, the element of anti-art. The anti-art aspect of Dada was very strong. It had been already practiced by um, Duchamp. We didn't know him personally then, but later on I made his acquaintance in New York. And he was one of the brightest artists of his time. He had then already at this time conceived his so-called ready-made where the whole ironical element of Dadaism, which is a part of the general resentment and hostility that we had, are expressed. To me, for all imprisonment, 
We are all imprisoned in the castle of our skins, and some of us have said, so be it. If I am in jail, my castle shall become my rendezvous. My courtyard will bloom with hyacinths and jack-in-the-pulpits. My moat will not restrict me, but will be filled with dolphins sitting on lily pads and seahorses ridden by starfish. Goldfish will make love to black mollies and color my world black gold. The vines entwining my windows will grow butterflies and yellow jackets will buzz me to sleep. The dwarfs in prison will not become my clowns for me to scorn, but my dolls for me to praise and fuss with and give tea parties to. My gnomes will spin cloth of spiderweb silkness. My wounded chocolate soldiers will sit in evening coolness or stand gloriously at attention during that midnight sun, for I would have no need of day patrol. If I am in prison in my skin, let it be a dark world with a deep base walking a witch doctor to me for spiritual consultation. Let my world be defined by my skin and the skin of my people, for we, spirit to spirit, will embrace this world. fathers that drink my, my father used to get drunk on Friday nights and come home and talk shit for like six hours the same shit over and over and over again and swear they saying some heavy shit to you too first he would mess with my mother you know he'd go and mess with my mother for a little while then my mother would go get like get the iron and wrap the cord around her hand start swinging that shit saying I think you better leave me alone sweetheart he drunk, but he ain't crazy. He come to my room then, right? Start fucking with me. My father, you can feel him in the doorway looking at you, too. And they'll stand there for like three hours just staring at you. And you turn over and your father's standing there going. Years ago, this Get your ass out of the bed. Hey, hey, do you know what it is? You know, this in life, this in my house. I know that you, uh, you don't get motherfuckers, you don't listen to me. I see you got you a man, God damn, say, hey, in my heart, in my head, this you feeling? And the mother, don't you notice? Yes. <laughs> then all the shit you did bad all year comes out that night, right? But it don't make no sense, because it's all up. It's, it's, and you come in this house, you, get, you come here with the motherfucking 60 on your park card, you don't say shit to me. It is 60 on your park. You don't wash your ass, Eddie. You 
Listen, I gotta tell you this. I gotta tell you, take out the garbage. I gotta tell you to clean them up the room. I, I cut the grass. I work all day. I'ma come home and cut the fucking grass. No, I'm not gonna do this, guy. That you don't listen to me. It's so sweet, this motherfucking floor. You don't do nothing. Why don't you? And why don't you clean it? And this motherfucking dog you bring in. He said, said, Mary, take him. We had his dog. I get you the dog. You don't clean up at this motherfucking dog. Remember, you ever notice if your dog like takes the shit in the room, you pretend you don't see it because you know you have to clean the shit up. So you just walk past the shit and let your brothers clean that shit. So. I don't see no shit on the floor. <laughs> if I, and then still when the shit been in my den for three months, I tripped over that shit, isn't it? I tell you, see, you don't know this. Hey, I don't know that you gotta, you gotta know what I mean. <laughs> Once he came home real drunk on a Friday night after payday, with his paycheck, man, a big wad of money in his pocket. He came home and challenged me and my big brother. Came home and said, hey. My brother said, oh shit, he had that shit again. <laughs> hey, 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 turn out that, turn that fucking TV off. No, motherfucker, motherfucker, Quincy kissed my ass. You watching? I know, no, you think you're a man? You lift your weights, big shot, motherfucker? Lift your weights, press your weights, I kick your ass, eh? I will kick your ass. They did like this in my head. I kick your ass. <laughs> it's like getting physical. He said, Charlie, you think you hot shit? Motherfucker, I beat your ass so bad. And you and your brother and your mother, you kick, take this shit and get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing, because I will kick your ass. I'll tell you what, I'm going to say, here's my, I have to pay $500. You beat my ass, you can have every penny. You can have every penny. We beat the shit out that old man. We try to kill that motherfucker. Drunk people can't fight for shit. <laughs> they be trying to talk shit while you beating that in another. You go missing and <laughs> kick this ass. And the next day they don't remember that shit. Years ago, a very inventive comic by the name of Red Skelton did a bit called Guzzler's Gin. And this was funny. This kind of drunk with the shirt out, the hair in front of his face. But unfortunately, most comics say, well, that's the drunk to do, and they all do that drunk. And they don't see that kind of drunk. The drunks that they don't report are cafe drunks that they see time and time again. I call them white-collar drunks. Now, the best part of these guys is not when they're in the club watching a show, is when they first come in because they're really juiced out of their nut. But they drug that they don't want to be associated with drunks and they just walk extra cool when they work. So no one knows they're loaded, they think. They're impeccably dressed always, clean shaven, buff nails whacked out of their skull. You think I'm drunk, don't you? No, Mr. you're perfectly sober. Goddamn right I am. Listen, my dear. Hey, why don't you stop wiping those glasses for a minute, will you, and listen to me? Or do you want some trouble, hmm? hmm? Want a little trouble, glass wiper, huh? Don't you think it's time at the uh, house for a drink? Oh, gee, miss, you just walked in here. Boy, you're a real Milton Berle, aren't you? <laughs> Television, all those jokes. Listen, 
I... Hey, why don't you listen to me for a minute, eh? Pretty a arrogant. Son of a bitch, you know. Hey, I'm talking. You want to listen to me? You want a little trouble? You son of a bitch, I'll give it to you, eh? You want the old one-two? You'll get it. It's the old zippo bang, and that's what it is. What I want to talk to you about, if you'll listen, is my dog here. It's the most vicious dog in the whole world. He's rotten. I said, bet he is. You better goddamn believe it, mister. This dog. Did you take my drink away? Hey, you didn't order yet, all right? Yesterday. He killed six cocker spaniels, a catamaran, and a school bus. My father's very wealthy. And he can be pretty rotten if we don't get a drinky winky. Get it? Son of a bitch, you. He's ready to go, and so am I. Judo will give it to him. Fascist bastard. <laughs> so next to him is a guy who's really whacked out. A good, legit, drunk, gala wine man. You know. I heard that. That's a lot of crap. I mean, try to pull the old crapper over. The old one, two, crapper.
This is Charles Bukowski. Well, just let me sit here and drink beer. What was it? I heard Cage one time, he got on the stage and they uh, just stood there and he ate an apple and he walked off and got a thousand dollars. I'll just drink this, I'll drink this beer and I'll leave, right? <laughs> okay, let's forget the bullshit. <clears throat> Get into the so-called art. This keeps up, I may have all you guys off the shit. I don't know if you guys know about horse racing, okay. I'm glad you let that sentence go on. The creation of the morning line. The morning line runs about thus. Cliché, six to five. Originality, five to two. Treachery, four. Hope, six. Malfunction, six. History, eight. Medicine, 10. Syphilis, 12. Kindness, 15. Law, 20. Crime, 20. Copulation, 30. Love, 50. Forget overlays. Love never won yet since platitude was an overnight scratch. If you can get three to five on cliche, put down everything you've got. I take you now to the headquarters of Religions Incorporated. And seated around the desk on Madison Avenue sit the religious leaders of our country. Religion, big business. We hear H.A. addressing the tight little group on Madison Avenue. Ladies and gentlemen, nice to see so many boys here tonight. Nice to see religious leaders I haven't seen in many years. I just was talking to Billy this afternoon. I said, Billy, you've come a long way, sweetie. A long way. Who would have thought back in 31, we were hustling baby pictures in. <laughs> and shingles and siding were swinging. Yeah, we didn't know what the hell to do. We were going to... Maybe the CC camps are starting to move. And I didn't know myself, you know? And just like that, we came on it. You know, the Gideon, and there we were. Uh, the graph here tells a story, that's about it. Uh, for the first time in 12 years, Catholicism is up nine points. <laughs> Judaism is up 15. The big P, the Pentecostal, is starting to move, finally. And uh, now, gentlemen, we've got Mr. Nectaya from our religious novelty house in Chicago, who's got a beautiful cellar. The genuine Jewish star, Lucky Cross, and cigarette lighter combined. <laughs> then we got the kiss me in the dark, Mazizu. And the walk me, talk me, wet me camel. And these wonderful little cocktail napkins with some hell of a sayings there. Another martini for Mother Gabrini. <laughs> and some pretty far out things, may I say. Now, 
We like to, uh, as you know, there's a lot of religious leaders that we've seen here, boys we don't know. This is the first time we've really united like this. There's about 6,000 boys out here from all over the country. And little favors, you know, the mission of promise would be no individual hustling, you know. <laughs> I mean, let's make the scene together, because like if we burn ourselves, where are we gonna end up, you dig? <laughs> okay, now, I want to introduce... Oh, we got Mr. Acton here, a great man, our uh, Seventh-day Adventist, who on the leading tour of the leper colonies took some beautiful color slides. <laughs> here is the greatest holy roller in America today. A great man and a great holy roller are... Well, thank you very much. Thank you, boy. Here, have a snake. Gentlemen, tonight, tonight is thrill night. Does thrill night seem to jar you? Gentlemen, why is it thrill night? Is it thrill night for the teenagers? The Elvis Presley's no, gentlemen, it's thrill night for me because tonight, for the first time in seven years, I'm talking to men of the industry. For the first time in seven years, gentlemen, I'm not going to look into one honest, sweaty, lockied face. Not one thick redneck. Gentlemen, tonight I stood for the last time in Oakland. I looked for the last time 1,900 square feet of canvas. I felt the heat of the gas burn on my neck. I looked down at the sawdust. I looked at these people. And I said, Oriel, tonight, you're going to be talking to the men. And I said, what would I talk about? And it came to me like that gentleman, the heavenly land and where it is. Well, gentlemen. Gentlemen. Tonight. Where is the heavenly land? Well, I'll tell you one thing, my friends. The Heavenly Land is not in the cheap neighborhood bar. The Heavenly Land is not in the burlesque house. The Heavenly Land is not in Dreamland. But the Heavenly Land is not on Wall Street. Well, you might say to me, all right, you said it's not on Wall Street. You tell us it's not in the cheap neighborhood bar. Gentlemen, did you wonder if tonight I knew where the Heavenly Land is? I do, my friends. Heavenly Land is in one place and one place only. And do you know where that is? Shevis Ravine! And them sons of bitches are trying to take it away from us! With that million dollar land grab and the city planning fathers! Gentlemen, I know what some of you are thinking out there. I know what's going, I know what's going on, gentlemen. Some of you gentlemen who have never seen me before, you're saying, uh, well, look at that man up there, this modern-day prophet there. Look at him ranting and raving. He's looking at me so smart. He he told us where the heavenly land is. Now, does he know what to do with it when he gets it? Well, maybe, gentlemen, I'm not that smart. Maybe I'm dumb. That's it. There's old dumbbell up there. Ha, ha, ha! There's the dummy. Would you want to have a laugh? That's right, laugh at him. Ho, 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 ho! There's the dummy. I'm dumb. Ha, 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 ha! Yes, I'm dumb. I got two Lincoln Continentals. That's a goddamn dumb I am. 
I'm dumb in hell. I don't know how much a whole lot of nines are. Now, maybe that's it, gentlemen. Maybe I don't. Maybe I don't know everything in the world. Maybe I'm stupid. But if I don't, I got some men on my staff who do. <laughs> Tell us now what to do with the heavenly land when we get it right by our wires. Well, thank you very much. I think we should subdivide. <laughs> That's pretty kooky, bro. That's um, pretty far out. Now, gentlemen, what's that? What is it? Your long-distance call just came in, sir. I'll take it in there. I'll talk to you boys later. Yes, operator. This is 610. Yes, I'll take the charges. <laughs> yes, Johnny, what's shaking, baby? <laughs> Boy, it's really been an election month, hasn't it, sweetie? Well, listen, I hate to... Yeah, the puff of white smoke knocked me out. We got an eight-page layout with Viceroy. The new pope is a thinking man. Yeah. Well, if you wanted to go for the tattoo, but I figured the hell with it. It would have been too far out. I thought so. Yeah. Uh-huh. Listen, I hate to bug you, but they're bugging us again with that dumb integration. Now I don't know why the hell I want to go to school either. Yeah, that school bus scene. Well, we had to give them the bus, but there's two toilets on each bus. But they're bugging us. They say, get the religious leaders. Make them talk about it. I know it, but they're getting hit. Yes. They say, no, they don't want no more quotations from the Bible. They want us to come out and say things. They want us to say, let them go to school with them. No, I did walking across the water and snake into the cane. They don't want to hear that jazz anymore. And that stop war jazz every time the bombs scare. Yeah, they keep saying, thou shalt not kill means that, not a man's section A. Yes. They don't want the bomb. Sure, they're commies. No, I ain't getting snotty, but we got to do something. Yeah. I got two... F yeah, we got some people on our side. We got Scatman Crothers and Stephen Fetcher. <laughs> don't do no good. No, but... We yes, that's why I called you. What are we going to do? Sure, that's easy for you to say. You're over there. Yeah, I know. And thanks for the pepperoni. Yeah. Hey, uh, Billy, you want to say something to him? This is a flat black plastic show on Mutiny Radio. Dot FM. Keep listening, please. I'll give you my next poem. Death. Look, he said, you've got spider traps all along this wall. It's fascinating. He was outside my door, peering at the stucco wall. I said, come on in. He said, no, wait. And he got a twig and found some ants. And he said, Bukowski, I'm going to make this ant run the gauntlet. The phone rang, and I answered the phone. And all I was talking and listening, he said, Bukowski, he got away from the first spider. 
Now the second one is out and he's got the ant by the rear leg. Listen, Linda, I said, I've got a visitor and also my toilet stopped and the shit is coming up through the tub. Bukowski, he said, now the spider is throwing a net over him. He's weaving around and around. Now he's moving in, Bukowski. Now he's got him. Death. The landlord came in. It'll take a little while to clear it up, he said. He was talking about the shit. All right, I said. Linda, I said, shit and death is everywhere. I'll call you back, she said. Now I've got a spider, said my visitor, and I'm giving him to the ants. I walked outside. For Christ's sake, kid, will you stop playing this spider ant game? Let's go for a ride. The landlord gets very nervous when he plays with the plumbing. Look, he said, the ants are chopping the spider's legs off one by one. Good strategy, I said, let's go. We drove down to Norm's and had breakfast. My friend commented continually on humanity. He didn't think they were much. I didn't argue. My friend was a great admirer of Ernest Hemingway. I drove him to Hollywood and Normandy and let him out. When I got back, the shit was still in the tub. I didn't want to take a bath anyway. <laughs> the sex fiends. We all are. <laughs> the sex fiends. I go to this rehabilitation center with my sister, he said. And the sex fiends all sit together. They're all guys five feet tall or under. And this one guy, they call him the rabbit. Well, the rabbit's problem is that he propositions every woman he sees. He just walks up and asks them to go to bed with him. I think that's very honest, I said. Some very greasy characters use the roundabout approach. Maybe so, he said, but it's still gotten the rabbit into trouble. In fact, he said, the rabbit saw a woman at the center and he walked up to her and said, will you go to bed with me? And the woman said, no, and the rabbit said, I'll give you a dollar.
Then all the sex fiends went into this room to masturbate. And the rabbit was working away when the therapist walked in and he tried to rape her. Yeah, yeah, what happened? Oh, she just pushed him off and walked out. By the way, I asked, what were you doing there? Oh, he said, I'm a sex fiend. I go every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Do you want to come with me next week? I ought to, I said, but I like to sleep late in the morning. Entre sombra y espacio, entre guarniciones y doncellas, dotado de corazón singular y sueños funestos, precipitadamente pálido, marchito en la frente y con luto de viudo furioso por cada día de vida. Hay para cada agua invisible que bebo soñolientamente y de todo sonido que acojo temblando tengo la misma sed ausente y la misma fiebre fría. Un oído que nace una angustia indirecta, como si llegaran ladrones o fantasmas, y en una cáscara de extensión fija y profunda, como un camarero humillado, como una campana un poco ronca, como un espejo viejo, como un olor de casa sola en la que los huéspedes entran de noche perdidamente ebrios, y hay un olor de ropa tirada al suelo y una ausencia de flores, posiblemente de otro modo aún menos melancólico, pero la verdad de pronto, el viento que azota mi pecho, las noches de sustancia infinita caídas en mi dormitorio, el ruido de un día que arde con sacrificio, me piden lo profético que hay en mí, con melancolía y un golpe de objetos que llaman sin ser respondidos. Hay y un movimiento sin tregua y un nombre confuso. Where can I buy a toothbrush? ¿Dónde se venden cepillos de dientes? Toothpaste. Pasta dentífrica. Shaving cream. Crema de afeitar. Razor blades. Hojitas de afeitar. Can I get lipstick there too? Venden allí también lápices de labios? Powder, polvos, hairpins, horquillas, the comb, el peine, the hairbrush, el cepillo, 
the soap. El jabón. The medicine. La medicina. The drug. La droga. The drugstore. La farmacia. The needle. La aguja. The thread. El hilo. The cotton. El algodón. The wool. La lana. The silk. La seda. The nylon. El nylon. The rayon. El rayon. I have a toothache. Tengo un dolor de muelas. Could you recommend a good dentist? ¿Podría usted recomendarme un buen dentista? Todos estos señores estaban dentro cuando ella entró completamente desnuda. Ellos habían bebido y comenzaron a escupirla. Ella no entendía nada, recién salía del río. Era una sirena que se había extraviado. Los insultos corrían sobre su carne lisa. La inmundicia cubrió sus pechos de oro. Ella no sabía llorar, por eso no lloraba. No sabía vestirse, por eso no se vestía. La tatuaron con cigarrillos y con corchos quemados y reían hasta caer al suelo de la taberna. Ella no hablaba porque no sabía hablar. Sus ojos eran color de amor distante, sus brazos construidos de topacios gemelos, sus labios se cortaron en la luz del coral y de pronto salió por esa puerta. Apenas entró al río, quedó limpia, relució como una piedra blanca en la lluvia y sin mirar atrás nadó de nuevo, nadó hacia nunca más, hacia morir. My headaches. Me duele la cabeza. I have an upset stomach. Me siento mal del estómago. I have a sore throat. Tengo dolor de garganta. The feet. Los pies. The arms. Los brazos. The legs. Las piernas. The nose. La nariz. The eyes. Los ojos. The ear. El oído. The chest. El pecho. Bonjour. Bonjour. The back. Las espaldas. I need a doctor. Necesito un médico. Where is his office? Donde tiene su consultorio? Where can I buy a good newspaper? ¿Dónde puedo comprar un buen periódico? Are United States newspapers sold in this city? Se venden en esta ciudad. Clams. Almejas. 
Eggs. Huevos. Scrambled. Revueltos. Soft boiled. Pasados por agua. Poached. Escalfados. Hard boiled. Duros. An omelette. Una tortilla de huevos. Beverages. Bebidas. Water. Agua. Tea. Te. Coffee. Café. Milk. Leche. Beer. Cerveza. Wine. Vino. Sherry. Vino de Jerez. Tea. Te. Coffee. Café. Milk. Leche. Beer. Cerveza. 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 Beer. Cerveza. Bonjour, Hélène. Bonjour, maman chérie. Lève-toi, Hélène. Il est tard. Il est tard? Quelle heure est-il? Il est 9 heures. Il est déjà 9 heures? Oui, il est déjà 9 heures. Bonjour Hélène. Comment vas-tu? Bonjour papa chéri. Bonjour Charlie. Comment vas-tu petit frère? Embrasse-moi Hélène. À tout à l'heure. À tout à l'heure papa. À tout à l'heure Charlie. Lève-toi Hélène. Tout de suite. Oui maman. Je me lève tout de suite. Bonjour Hélène, bonjour Hélène. C'est le matin, c'est le matin. Lève-toi Hélène, lève-toi Hélène. Embrasse maman, embrasse papa. Egad, Sherlock Himlock here, the world's greatest detective, and I believe the letter following W is X. Marks the spot. X marks the crossroads. Two straight lines crossing over in the middle. That's the letter you must see to find the treasure or the clue or the X-ray machine that's looking right inside of you. Is the letter without which one could not do? X marks the spot. X stands for danger. 
two straight lines crossing over in the middle saying here's the railroad crossing and sometimes it means there's pirates or at worst it means there's poison and in case these thoughts of X are vexing you X stands for xylophone K is the next letter. Herbert Birdsfoot will now recite his K poem. So listen for the words that start with K. I don't wanna. Why not, Herb? Well, because everyone says it's silly. You'll say it's silly. Herbie will not now. You won't say it's silly? No! Oh, okay. There once was a king from Kalamazoo who met a kicky kangaroo. Now the kindly kangaroo named Kay played a keen kazoo both night and day. Twas the kind of kazoo that went cuckoo. Cuckoo, cuckoo went Kay's kazoo. And when the kindly king of Kalamazoo heard Kay the kangaroo's kazoo, he said, right here in Kalamazoo, we'll build a zoo for a kangaroo. And so when you are passing through, stop by and you can listen to the Kalamazoo Zoo's kangaroo play cuckoo-coo on her kazoo. I hate to say this, Herb, but you know what? What? That's silly! Hélène, dépêche-toi. Il est tard. Es-tu prête? Non, maman chérie. Pardon, maman. Puis-je téléphoner? Je ne suis pas prête. Oui, Hélène. Qui veux-tu appeler? Il est 9h30. Je veux appeler Anne. Lève-toi, Il y a un programme chérie. spécial à la télévision. Il est déjà Mais je ne sais pas à quelle heure. Prends le téléphone dans ma chambre. Maman. Merci, maman. J'ai une idée. Mademoiselle, donnez-moi le numéro de téléphone une bonne idée. de Anne du Jardin, s'il vous plaît. Mais apprenons d'abord les nombres. Il y a un numéro sous Henri Écoute. du Jardin. Un, deux, oui. trois, c'est son père. Quatre, cinq. Donnez-moi le numéro, s'il vous plaît, mademoiselle. 10. Richelieu, 8, 1, 52, 2, 49, 3, 4, Merci beaucoup, mademoiselle. 6, oui, merci. 8, Je vais noter le numéro. 10. C'est très bien, chérie. Qui est à l'appareil Combien de doigts avons-nous, maman chérie Madame Dujardin Nous avons dix doigts, Hélène. Anne est-elle à la maison Comptons-les ensemble. Merci beaucoup. J'attendrai. Un, deux, trois, quatre, ici Hélène. Cinq, six, Anne. À quelle station est le programme des marionnettes, s'il te plaît 10. À la station la chanson du picoulet. À quelle heure De suite. C'est ainsi que l'on danse notre charmant picoulet. Et c'est un merveilleux. 
le programme si maman que l'on danse notre charmant picoulet picoulet d'un doigt d'un doigt picoulet des deux doigts des deux doigts picoulet des trois doigts des trois doigts picoulet des quatre doigts des quatre doigts picoulet des cinq doigts des cinq doigts Picoulet des six doigts, des six doigts. Picoulet des sept doigts, des sept doigts. Picoulet des huit doigts, des huit doigts. Picoulet des neuf doigts, des neuf doigts. Picoulet des dix doigts, des dix doigts. Picoulet de la main, de la main. Picoulet des deux mains, des deux mains. Picoulet du cœur. Hold on, players. I'll try to connect you. Hey, Gert, plug in on this bit. It should be a gas. Carl Sandberg and Nick Kenny are going to have a conversation. <laughs> Did you ever? <laughs> Go ahead, players. Uh, hello? Excuse me for bothering you, <laughs> sir, but I have always respected your writing. And I wonder if you would mind giving me your honest opinion about my latest poem. Well, all right, let's hear it. It's called oh, Man's Best Friend the Dog Is. Oh, <laughs> A dog is truly man's best friend. His pure devotion is the end. He asks for nothing but a walk. Which isn't bad, since he can't talk. Uh, well, uh, uh, I'll, I'll tell you. So when you see a dog, be kind. He's the nicest friend you'll ever find. Besides, if you ain't kind, he might growl and give you such a bite. Uh, well, uh, frankly... And then I... you'll cry. You'll cry and really bleed. I ask you, Friends like that you need? Uh, is, is that it? Yeah. What do you think? Well, it's not bad, Mr. Sandberg, but it's not the stuff we're printing in our paper. Kurt Schwitters spricht Teile seiner Sonate mit Urlauten. Oh, 
This is the Flat Black Rack, Flat Black Plastic Radio Show on Mutineo, Mutiny Radio FM. My name Fidel Castro. Oh boy. I want to speak to Nikita Khrushchev in Russia. Are you still sure he wants to speak to you? Just get him for me and jury up. <laughs> all right, all right. Hold your chickens. And make it collect. Hold on. Hello! I have a collect call for a Mr. Khrushchev from Fidel Castro in Cuba. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm not here. I hear you. I hear you. All right, operator, I'll take the call. Go ahead, please. Hello, fiddle. <laughs> Hello. Indian giver. Uh, sticks and stones could break my bones, but names would never hurt me. You took back my planes and rockets. I'm sorry. And I never even got to unpack the planes. Well, it's your own fault for leaving everything out there where everybody could see it. My fault? Where do you expect me to put it? Tell me, where could I put a 40-foot rocket with an atomic warhead? I'll tell you, fiddle. Believe me, you're gonna like it! What's today's date? The 17th. 
They got a little bit more, a little bit more summer and shit. Go to cook, don't go to cookouts. I hate cookouts, man. Stay away from cookouts and shit. If you like me, you stay the fuck away from cookouts. I don't like my family come by the house. The relatives I ain't seen like since the last cookout. You got certain relatives you just see at the cookout. And they get on your fucking nerves every year. My Uncle Gus come by the house every year. My Uncle Gus is the uncle that like to work the grill and don't let nobody touch the grill when he's around and shit. As soon as he walk in the house, he's like, get away from that grill, you don't know how to start no fire. You don't know how to start no fire, put this fire out. There ain't no fire, goddammit. Eddie, Eddie, go over there and give me all that wood. I need half a tree. Chop that tree down over there. Chop down that tree and give me the wood from that tree over there. And Charlie, go give me two gallons of gasoline out of the shed. You two gallons of gasoline, you kids roll up your shirt, put that on the grill. We're gonna start a fire. Come on, you wanna eat? You wanna eat? Just, just shut up there, put that on the fire. Okay, put that wood inside there. Okay, give me the gasoline, Charlie. Hold the match. Well, I tell you, Charlie, throw the match on the gasoline, all right? Well, I tell you, all right? We're gonna make a fire. We're gonna eat it, right? Y'all wanna eat? We're gonna eat now. Here we go. Pour the gasoline on here like there. We need the whole group. Get that goddamn lighter fluid out there. That can't you legit. We're gonna put all two gallons of gasoline on this wood and make a fire. We're gonna eat a hamburger. Okay, here we go. Chat, throw the mat. Now that's a fire. That's a fire. Look at that. Look at that. He be all right. Roll Charlie around. Roll him around in there. Roll him around. Now, Uncle Gus is married to my Aunt Bunny. My Aunt Bunny got a mustache and shit. You know, one of them lady mustaches. It was real cool back when she was 20. She had, you know, ladies had them little thin ones. One thing is. Then when they get about 45, like Aunt Bunny, they be having the Billy D. Williams look. It should be thicker than the man's and shit. Aunt Bunny weighed like 300 pounds, like 250, real heavy lady and shit, and the kids were scared of her. You, be, you got that kid logic going. I remember Aunt Bunny come by the house and shit. It was like, I was petrified because she always wanted to kiss me or touch me and some shit. As soon as she walked in the door, it's like, come give your Aunt Bunny a kiss, baby. <laughs> and you go, ah, ah, ah. And your mother said, why don't you want to kiss your Aunt Bunny? Your kids don't give a fuck. They go, she got a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> slow when they be crying. Ah! Stop making all that noise. Ooh. I said shut up. <laughs> you be mad because your mother hits you. You be standing there wishing hateful shit on your mother. Ever do that? Be in the bedroom going, God, please kill her. I hope she get hit by a truck and die. Shut up, I'm coming to give something to cry about. One thing is, it's important to remember is that uh, the bells serve a purpose. It's not just a goof. It's, we don't have a horn on the, on the car. So. But of course, why not do it with finesse if you're going to do it? Exactly. Yeah. And that's the whole thing about the cable cars. You know, they're they have to do with finesse. It's not just driving a bus, getting from one end to the other. You're doing it in style, you know, entertaining the folks, enjoying yourselves, and they're enjoying themselves. We're sort of ambassadors to the world here. I'm fascinated by them. What else can I say? How much trouble have you catching up with And that is a real $64 question. When people say to me, why cable cars? I say, well, you know, I think every city should have something funny running around. It's a lot of fun. I like it. It's one yeah. of the best jobs I've ever had. I'd be real sorry when they close down. I've been spoiled by the cable cars. It's a real physical job, too. You can make it as physical as you want. I wanted to be a criminal.
that was my plan was to train as a gripman. But the world world about thirty percent of the gripman. The trainees wash out, and I didn't want to wash out because I would have I would have had to go back to the to the buses. So I broke in on the back end. It takes about two years, really, to learn that step, to learn all the possibilities. And then stuff happens that you never dreamed could happen. I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. Just the way that the various cars perform in various weather. It's, it's a real stressful stressful position, that, that job. It's hard. A lot of responsibility. There's no vehicle in the world that accelerates speed and power that this one is from a dead stop. Generally the advantages for the city are that it brings in billions of dollars in tourism. There's nothing like it in the world. It's got a, it's got acquaintances an old world aspect to it. That's what that's what people like. And it's not it's not an amusement ride and then it's in a real environment. I know this barn better than any guy here for most. Yes, there's a lot of things I've learned over the years being around these things. I learned how to work those things. I'm so used to seeing them. I just, I'd miss the sound. I'd just miss seeing them. What I'm saying would not be the same without them. I'm putting on a show? Yeah. No. We are performing, I guess, in a way. Yeah. Well, you have to be performers because you have to have people in your control. Yeah. Otherwise, you have people hanging out. If you. If you're not a performer out here, you have trouble controlling the crowd. And the, and the thing is, you're having a lot of people do a lot of things that are ordinarily uncomfortable, like packing cable carts. Okay, to get them to do it, it's a psychic dream, unless you can, unless you can get them to go along with the show. So it's really, uh, you're really sort of, uh, it's, a, it's, it's something you utilize. Performing is, the end result is not to give a performance. The end result is to use performing to get them to do what you want. Well, I, the fun of it is the subculture. There's a subculture out here. You know all these other cable cars. I mean, most of the people that work on cable cars socialize with cable car people. And you meet a lot of people along the way. Yeah. You know, you get to know. I mean, there are, there's a whole subculture of life, from cable car groupies to, you know, the whole thing. Well, there's Chinese and Axe is almost a mascot. I mean, he's, yeah, he's around every day. He's no trouble finding Chinese Max, you've probably seen him riding around. He's been out here, yeah, for 20 years, you know. Just riding him back and forth. Hey! Tell me they're going to tear the whole place down. He's supposed to. Tore the whole place down. Could be. Supposed to. A week? One week. That's it. Hey! All they get down, get funky. I don't hear what you say. Look at this. Look at this. Oh. I see what he's doing now. Oh, oh hey. What do you think? Okay, now listen to me very carefully. Listen to me very carefully. We cannot take you on the cable car here. You must board at the station. The reason you must board at the station is because the other people have waited in line, and it is only fair that you wait in line with them. Okay? Yes, you must catch it over there at the station. Yes, no problem, okay? All righty. There's a class that you have to be able to read people. Now, that woman there was going to argue. I mean, she was going to say, well, I'm different, you know, cater to me, I want to be on the cable car. So you have to be firm. Some you have to, 
Each one you have to, you can almost get a degree in psychology doing this job. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not. It's actually uh, ex exciting, you know, coming down the hill, knowing that you're in control of this great big piece of machinery and all these people's lives depend on you. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a job not everybody can do. A lot of yeah. people work. You feel proud in a way. Mm -hmm. You feel proud because the guy right there, he can't do this. Huh? And a lot of them get turned down when they, when they come over to try for it. They get turned away because they haven't got the, the right attitude for it, or they're just uh, came over just for the macho trip. I'm treated pretty much as an operator by many of the guys. I came on as a kid a year ago, and I've come out of it pretty much more an adult than half the kids my age. I wanted to be with the adults, be with the boys, be one of the boys as a twerp. I like it. I mean, I have a position of authority. Whether I'm official or not, I am a position of authority when I'm on the car. I'm really, in a way, in their shoes as well. I'm in their shoes. I'm on the halfway mark that one day. I met somebody. When I knew I started making my first uh, and second and third crews, then I started knowing I was getting in deeper into the system. I'm not just cable car now. I'm uni. Me, I'm the only kid in this whole city, the only person in this whole city who has ever been able to grip a car a full trip. I don't think any of these guys would have taken this job if they could not have the freedom they wanted. They're going to take all the history out of them. But I'll just have to live with it. All the, all the history is going to leave it. It's going to cut quite a bit of the history out of it. They're going to cut every single bit of history out of it. That's a whole chunk of history cut off of it. The history is going out of it. Now all it is is a moneymaker. Yeah. It's a moneymaker. It's, it's not a big form of transit. Now, now all it is is money. It's not history. History and money. There's one guy who worked here for years and years. Uh, Egan. He was he was a splicer and a really extremely uh, they call that kinetic type person. You know, the tools used to jump into his hands. You know, they refused to acknowledge the. Uh, the necessity for maintaining the simplicity of the system. So why not keep it simple? It's proved to, to work for 100 years simply. I kind of wish they wouldn't change anything out here. Well, you know, the cable cars are, uh, hey, man, they're super efficient. I, I really believe they're, you know. The world's greatest loser. He used to sell papers in front. Get your winners. Get rich on a dime. And about the third or fourth race, You'd see him rolling on his rotten board with his roller skates underneath. He'd propel himself along on his hands. He just had small stumps for legs, and the rims of the skate wheels were worn off. You could see inside the wheels, and they would wobble something awful, shooting and flashing imperialistic sparks. He moved faster than anybody, Rolled cigarette dangling, you could hear him coming. God almighty, what was that? The new ones asked. He was the world's greatest loser, but he never gave up, wheeling toward the $2 window, screaming, It's the four horse, you fools! How the hell are you going to beat the four? Up on the board, the four would be reading 60 to 1. I never heard him pick a winner. They say he slept in the bushes. I guess that's where he died. He's not around anymore. 
It was the big fat blonde who kept touching him for luck and laughing. Nobody had any luck. The whore is gone too. I guess nothing ever works for us. We're fools, of course. Bucking the inside plus a 15% take. How are you going to tell a dreamer when there's a 15% take on the dream? He'll just laugh and say, is that all? I miss those sparks. God, all you guys belching and puking. What kind of audience is this? That's good. I, okay. Read on, Charles. <laughs> what do you teach English Lit to? <laughs> Listen, before this thing's over, I'll come down to the audience and clean out all you babies. I'm a tough son of a bitch. All right. I brought my own shit. I'm reading it. <laughs> All right. Lots of you guys hate me. Let me go on. The last days of the suicide kid. Any other comments? The last days of the suicide kid. I can see myself now, after all these suicide days and nights, being wheeled out of one of these sterile rest homes. Of course, this is only if I get famous and lucky by a subnormal and bored nurse. There I am sitting upright in my wheelchair, almost blind, eyes rolling backward into the dark part of my skull looking for the mercy of death. Isn't it a lovely day, Mr. Bukowski? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the children walk past, and I don't even exist. And the lovely women walk by with big, hot hips and warm buttocks and tight, hot everything, praying to be loved, and I don't even exist. It's the first sunlight we've had in three days, Mr. Bukowski. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there I am, sitting upright in my wheelchair, myself whiter than a sheet of paper, bloodless. Brain gone, gamble gone, me, Bukowski gone. Isn't it a lovely day, Mr. Bukowski? Oh, yeah, yeah. Pissing in my pajamas, slop drooling out of my mouth. Two young schoolboys run by. Hey, did you see that old guy? Christ, yes, he makes me sick. After all the threats to do so, somebody else has committed suicide for me. At last. The nurse stops the wheelchair, breaks a rose from a nearby bush, puts it in my hand. 
I don't even know what it is. It might as well be my pecker for all the good it does. Of course, that's never going to happen, you know. <laughs> This is called The Shoelace. A woman, a tire that's flat, a disease, a desire, fears in front of you, fears that hold so still you can study them like pieces on a chessboard. It's not the large things that send a man to a madhouse. Death he's ready for, or murder, incest, robbery, fire, flood. No, it's a continuing series of small tragedies that send a man to the madhouse. Not the death of his love, but a shoelace that snaps with no time left. The dread of life is that swarm of trivialities that can kill quicker than cancer and which are always there. License plates or taxes or expired driver's license or hiring or firing, doing it or having it done to you. Or constipation, speeding tickets, rickets or crickets or mice or termites or roaches, or flies, or a broken hook on a screen, or out of gas, or too much gas. The sink stopped up, the landlord's drunk, the president doesn't care, and the, and the governor's crazy. Light switch broken, mattress like a porcupine, $105 for a tune-up, carburetor and fuel pump at Sears Roebuck. And the phone builds up and the market's down and the toilet chain is broken and the light is burned out. The hall light, the front light, the back light, the inner light, it's darker than hell and twice as expensive. And there's always crabs and ingrown toenails and people who insist they're your friends. There's always that and worse, leaky faucets, Christ and Christmas, blue salami, nine-day rains, 50-cent avocados, and purple liverwurst. Or making it as a waitress at Norm's on the split shift, or as an emptier of bedpans, or as a car wash or a busboy, or a stealer of old ladies' purses, leaving them screaming on the sidewalks with broken arms at the age of 80. Suddenly, two red lights in your rearview mirror and blood in your underwear, toothache, and $979 for bridge, for a bridge, pardon, and $300 for a gold tooth, and China, and Russia, and America, and long hair, and short hair, and no hair, and beards, and no beards, and faces and no faces, and plenty of zigzag but no pop, except maybe one to piss in and another one around your gut. With each broken shoelace, out of 100 broken shoelaces, one man, one woman, 
one thing enters a madhouse. So be careful when you bend over. She was so hot, I didn't want anybody else to have her. Now, if I didn't get home on time, she'd be gone. I couldn't bear that. I went mad. It was foolish, I know, childish. But I was caught in it. I was caught. I delivered all the mail, and then Henderson put me on the night pickup run in an old army truck. The damn thing began to heat halfway through the run and the night went on. Me thinking of my hot Miriam and jumping in out of the truck filling mail sacks. The engine continued to heat up. The temperature needle was at the end. Hot, hot like Miriam. I leaped in and out. Three more pickups and into the station I'd be. My car went in to get to Miriam, who sat on my blue couch with scotch on the rocks and crossing her legs and kicking her ankles like she did. Two more stops. The truck stalled at a traffic light. It was all hell kicking it over again. I had to be home at eight. Eight was the deadline for Miriam. I made the last pickup and the truck stalled at a signal one half block from the station. It wouldn't start, it couldn't start. I locked the doors, pulled the key and ran down to the station. I threw the keys down, signed out. Your goddamn truck is stalled at the signal, Pico and Western. I ran down the hall, put the key into the door, opened it. Her drinking glass was there and a note on the dresser. Son of a bitch. I waited until five after eight. You don't love me, you son of a bitch. Somebody will love me. I've been waiting all day, Miriam. <laughs> I poured a drink and let the water run into the tub. There were 5,000 bars in town and I'd make 25 of them looking for Miriam. Her purple teddy bear held the note as he leaned against the pillow. I gave the bear a drink, myself a drink, and got into the hot water. Earthquake. Americans don't know what tragedy is. A little 6.5 earthquake can set them to chattering like monkeys. A piece of chinaware broken. The Union Rescue Mission falls down. 6 a.m. They sit in their cars. They're all driving around. Where are they going? A little excitement has broken into their canned lives. Pardon.
Stranger stands next to stranger, chattering gibberish fear, anxious fear, anxious laughter. My baby, my flower pots, my ceiling, my bank account. This is just a tickler, a feather, and they can't bear it. Suppose they bomb the city as other cities have been bombed, not with an A-bomb, but with ordinary blockbusters day after day, every day, as has happened in other cities of the world. If the rest of the world could see you today, their laughter would bring the sun to its knees, and even the flowers would leap from the ground like bulldogs and chase you away to where you belong, wherever that is, and who cares where it is, as long as it's somewhere away from here. You've been listening to the flat 